0: today Uh, we're so blessed we're so fortunate to have so many people step forward and help us in this season with our music and our worship and I just want to say to each and every one of you in the the musicians and at the instruments and uh, um, Brian leading in in our singers as well and we've got folks back there in the sound booth Um, now they know I'm not very complicated So they keep my part simple, like, you know, come up to the podium now, right? You know, this is not, they don't overdo me. But the the rest of them though, sometimes I can sense that they're like twirling multiple plates at one time to make all this happen. And somehow they do all the things that have uh, been required and more. And sometimes, some weeks, it's been nearly a full-time job to keep worship going. And uh, I just want to say to each of them as the the year closes, thank you so profoundly. And we're so so blessed. And Brian, I don't know that I've heard that song before this morning. I'm trying to remember. But I don't think I'll forget it again. Thanks so much. And we're so, so, so very appreciative. And God bless you all for helping and uh, enriching our worship. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to, first, uh, to Matthew, the first chapter, or read there from the genealogy. I know you're thinking, the genealogy? <laughs> and uh, well, I hope you're still not thinking and wondering why we did the genealogy after. But I think there's a great deal there. In fact, I think in a way there's the whole story coded in code right there at the beginning if you just know where to look for it. I read uh, an accomplished scholar named uh, Robert Louis Wilkins. Uh, I admire him and read him for years and read with profit almost everything he's ever done. He's a remarkable scholar of the early church especially. And uh, I was interested to hear him speak once and glad to hear a little bit about his personal life. He's been a minister all the way along through this great a remarkable uh, high-echelon sort of scholarship, a uh, world-class scholar, but he's been a minister and a lay minister as well. I learned, among other things, that he would read scripture to people who were ill in his church and thought that was a beautiful ministry that he extended. He tells the story of going to one saint and asking her if she had a particular passage, and she, without hesitation, Genesis 1. She wanted to know about the beginning. Now he thought maybe she would be encouraged by those sort of feel-good passages that make hope sort of uh, well up within us when we hear about there's no condemnation and we hear that there's nothing that separates from the love of God. But no, she persisted, Genesis 1. This went on for some weeks. He was curious, maybe you want to go on to something else. No, she always wanted to start with Genesis 1. He was curious about this, and in time she voiced an instinct that somehow if you understood what was all there in the beginning, you could see where things were going from there on out. He was surprised when he learned as a scholar that many of the early churchmen felt exactly like she did. Everything you needed was really there in the beginning, all along. I think that's the way it is with Jesus' genealogy. If we could unpack just a little bit of it, we could see the richness of it and see where things are going. Now, your good folks are back on a uh, holiday weekend to go to church. God bless you. So I'll not take you through all the baguettes, but if you would follow with me a little bit. We'll read the first portion of this genealogy and then sort of the sum up of it in chapter 17. So if you would follow along in verse 1, Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now to the beginning there, verse two of the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now to verse 17. And thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 more generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and then 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And there's the sort of summation of it all. I think we can understand this genealogy in part if we see it at its beginning and its end. Notice in verse 17, it gives you the big picture. You could read the Bible and find no doubt many, many different strands and many, many different stories, but you may not put all those stories together to make one true story. You may not get the big picture right. And so this genealogy is getting the picture straight. It's laying out the whole sequence. It's putting it all together. And when you see it in its complexity this way, then you see that everything that had gone in, all the different parts, all the different subplots, all the different characters and so on, they were all part of one big thing that God was doing. One big person, one big plan, one big scheme. And this big picture is painted for us. Israel's story starts with God calling Abram. The creation and so on shows us God's intention all along. But this particular story starts with Abraham. And he calls Abram back then before Abraham. And he makes Abram a promise. You can find the condensed version of that promise in chapter 12, the first three verses. And the last of those verses, verse 3, ends this way. That... The promises, all those great things that God is going to do for Israel and give to Abram's people, but there's a purpose. It's not just that God intends to bless those people as an end in itself, but God intends to do something with those people. And through those, what God is going to do with those people, He's going to reach out and be the channel of blessing for all of the world. All the world, all the nations, all the peoples will find their blessing in what I'm doing in and through you. It's a big promise. Now still, you may think, that it's a humble beginning. If you remember anything about Abraham's story, you have every reason to, to wonder about it being a humble story. Remember, he was going to make a, a father out of Abraham and bring a great nation to be out of Abraham, but yet Abraham couldn't have kids, and by now they were old, and it seems so unlikely. The promise seems so precarious, and if you follow Abraham's story, Abraham seems to go back between great moments of faith where he trusts this story completely and other times where he just seems to lose hope and grasp at straws. It seems precarious and so on, but notice God keeps the story going and he brings to the most unlikely of things like Egyptian slavery. He brings a great people uh, to, to, to bear and a great family that follows after Abraham. And that family then is given a, a nation and that nation has this ideal king early on, King David. And that's sort of the high point. That's the glory days. This ideal worshiper, this ideal ruler, this ideal person who seems to be so in touch with God and seems to be the centerpiece of God's plans. That's the glory days. But you'll notice that another glorious son follows, but does not stay close to this God and does not worship him. And then the nation divides, and then one nation falters, the north, Israel, and then the southern nation falters and gets carried off in uh, captivity to Babylon. And how those folks must have wondered and wondered about life and faith and where this story is going, when they look back over their shoulder and they see Jerusalem smoldering, they see the temple knocked down, and they see themselves humiliated and defeated and now being marched off in captivity to Babylon what they must have thought, how they must have wondered about how this story could ever go forward. But the story wasn't over. There's a last leg of this genealogy. Those first 14 take us from Abraham to the glory days of David, and now from the glory days of David to the despair of exile in Babylon. But God's not through with them yet, and they've served their time and their punishment, and God showed them even after this punishment he was not through with them. And he brought a series of prophets to talk about what God would be doing next. And he looked ahead and he told them to look ahead. There'd be another person, not an Abraham this time and not a David this time, but another person, another anointed one. And this anointed one, like Abraham and like David before, would lead them into the new thing that God had for them, the new final work of salvation. And we call this person the Messiah. That's where history is going, and that's the kind of the arc of this story. Now, don't get worried about the 14s and so on. The truth is, Bible and ancient genealogies are more like a cover letter than a resume. Uh, the truth is something like this. They, they're very selective tellings, and so I might give you one genealogy if I was speaking before you as a, as a group of plumbers. I might try to tell you about a famous plumber in, in my family tree. Uh, I might do something different if I thought you were interested in preaching. I want to tell you that I had a granddad who was a remarkable preacher and, and a remarkable pastor and so on. These genealogies were sort of targeted, and this is too by its shape and its scope. But by telling the story this way, it shows us that there's been one great story that God has been accomplishing, and there's been high marks in this story, and there's been low points in this story, but the story is not finished yet. In fact, the story's destiny still lies ahead of us. This Messiah and his rule and complete rule, that's the answer that the readers in Matthew's day read about. And that's how the story is working. Now the first verse gives you who's driving the story. And you can't miss it. This story and this book and this genealogy is the genealogy of Jesus. And the church knows Jesus as Jesus the Messiah. We almost think about Christ as like it's a last name for Jesus sometimes, right? I mean, you you might have heard people almost wonder that. And, And surely enough, it reads like a title, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and it's, I think, this Messiah, this end-of-time Messiah, this Messiah who's going to take God's final work forward, that's who Jesus is. But notice, this same Jesus that's the Messiah is also the Jesus who is the royal ruler, the David. The David who will rule again, a one who will come after him, a child of David, a descendant of David is going to rule after him and take David's project forward. That's the same one. The son of David and Messiah is Jesus. The same son of David is the Messiah and the Son of David and Messiah is Jesus. And it goes one better. Who's also the descendant, the real child of Abraham who's carrying Abraham's for promise forward? Who is, in other words, the one who opens up a, God's work and shows God's work? To be unmistakably a work for the larger world and not just for this family of Abraham. No one does that with more power and clarity than Jesus. Although you might say it's been there all along if you just knew to look for it. So who's the one who carries God's promise forward and breaks God's promise out? To the worldwide bounds, which is his goal. Who is the one who carries forward the kingly rule and authority of Jesus? Who is the one who is the one who will come and bring and initiate God's final great work in the world? And in just this one verse, you know it's the who. You know the who of the story. It's Jesus. And now you know kind of where the story is going and how it fits together. That's the last verse, verse 17. And all the pieces in between fit in that grand big story. Now, I'll take the time just to look, as I've read to you, at the first of these verses, uh, the first leg of that relay. I didn't quite perhaps get all of that with David in the text, but I think we get the big idea. And uh, I want to mention to you there's some liberties with this genealogy. I've already told you that genealogies in the ancient world uh, aren't really interested like our family trees and getting every single person along the way in the generation. That's just not their concern. I think uh, the, the, the everyday Bible student could take their reference tools at home and, and find that their genealogist skipped in this, and, and that would be a surprise to no one who read this story in its old setting. That's just the way genealogies work. But what would surprise somebody about this genealogy is the mention of, sisters, I'm sorry, but the mention of women. I won't say that it's absolutely unprecedented in Hebrew life, but I want to say it's very rare. I feel confident in saying that. And yet, if you read this first leg of the story, how they go from Abraham to David, you won't miss this. Women figure prominently. And that's just different and strange. And it makes us pay special attention as to why they're mentioned at all. I mean, I could see maybe the great matriarchs being mentioned, right? There's a, there's a Sarah who, who laughed but came to see God's promise fulfilled. There's a Rebecca, there's a Leah. There are, there are plenty of matriarchs you could choose from, but none of those that you think would make the story. Instead, Bible students have to go scrambling for some of these references. Now, you know Ruth, and I have preached on Ruth, and I have defended Ruth's virtue, by the way. I think Boaz intends to protect her, her character, and her reputation. But if you didn't notice before, I want you to cast another eye on Ruth, because what Ruth does is provocative. When she goes and joins Boaz there on the threshing room floor, It is romantic, and it is exceptional. There's just something going on there. Now, again, I've defended Ruth's honor before, and I I would do it again in terms of the way the story reads, but I just want to say to you, what she does is provocative and no doubt would raise some scandal in her time and place to be so forward and to take so much initiative. And that's what she does. Now, we know her as the, as the true one who pledges uh, uh, with her loyalty to her husband and pledges to the loyalty um, to her mother-in-law He makes the journey with her and so on. But in the ancient world, a woman who is a widow, a foreigner, would not necessarily be a great resource to have along in the trip. In fact, she may just complicate Naomi's story. Naomi might have had an easier way finding some generous old patron to take her in and feed this old woman. But Ruth's presence there may complicate her life. But you know the story, and you know although Ruth was a foreigner, and Ruth had suffered the loss of her husband, That Ruth had something that God loves. Ruth has this stubborn faithfulness to covenant. And God honors her and recognizes her. And the Hebrew tradition recognizes her as well. Now Tamar, who's mentioned, is another matter. Uh, She's um, secretive and deceptive and seduces her her father-in-law. It's a story that we have a hard time sort of finding virtue in, although her father-in-law makes it plain in the story. If you read it all, he says, she's the righteous one. I'm the one who's really done wrong here because, she, because he did not fulfill his promise under the law to her. And so she takes her sort of, I don't know that it's revenge, but she takes her action in response to his failure. But there's a hard time that we have to find many silver linings in that story. It seems to be the story of some moral failure, and maybe moral failure upon moral failure. But there she is, right in the middle of things. And she, like Ruth, is another foreigner. Wow. Rahab. You know from the story of the spies going in in the book of Joshua is the prostitute. But she sees something in the work of God in Israel. And we don't know much about her story, but we know Israel celebrates her later. Uh, the tradition around her suggests that she reforms her ways and becomes a faithful member worshiping Uh, the God of Israel, and, and is a faithful person, but somehow, despite her predicament or her chosen profession, she sees something in the God of Israel, and she believes, and she risks her place and her status, and she helps these spies. Somehow she has faith that shines through and comes through, again, despite her office and predicament. Now Bathsheba is mentioned, although it's at the end of verse 6 there. I didn't read it. Uh, she is mentioned, but indirectly, uh, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So Bathsheba, I believe, is referenced in the Bible as being uh, born as a, as a Hebrew, uh, ethnically, if you pursue that. But I, th- I think the idea is that she's married to this foreigner, and the foreigner has worked his way into a place of prominence in Israel's army. But notice... We don't know how much to blame Bathsheba here exactly, but David takes her in an adulterous act. And we notice that Bathsheba in time learns to play power politics herself, and is quite ruthless in the exercise and pursuit of her own well-being and that of her family. We don't know how much to suspicion her participation early on in the events, but we know that David is guilty of a murderous act to hide his relationship with her. He not only deceives and lies, but he even is guilty of murder. And what a lineup there is in this, in this genealogy. We could just blame the women, I suppose, all with a foreign connection, right? All with some sort of a sexual question about their behavior and about their, uh, about their practice. Uh, all, by the way, um, uh, sort of uh, remarkable that God would uh, ever include them. Again, these are not the great matriarchs we remember because of their faithfulness. Uh, these are folks who seem to be fragile in their place in Israel is a place by faith. It's not something they grew up in and just knew and were nurtured in. They came to find their place there and their behavior is questionable and we have so many wonder uh, questions and, and, and wonderings about them, but just notice this uh, that last little story reminds you that even the apple of God's eye, even the person at the apex of our story, even David And we look for new kings to be an ideal king like David, right? But even David wasn't ideal, but far from it. And David's life was compromised by this high-handed and ugly sin before God, where he just simply takes what he wants. It was God's nightmare that kings would end up just being little mini-gods themselves. And that's exactly what happened Now, David repents. You've heard his story. He worships again. He suffers from this wrongdoing, but he continues to serve God and love God, and he has this prominent place in the genealogy. Now, we wonder why. Why are these folks mentioned? Why especially are these women folks mentioned? Is it that Matthew wants to show, just so no one can miss it, that Jesus has been very deliberate in his teaching and so on that would follow, very deliberate, that there'll be folks from the east and the west that'll join us at the table. and We Hebrew folks aren't the only one, but God is going to reach out to the whole world. Did he want us to see that unmistakably and see that it was already coded into the story? Even how God brought Jesus into this world depended on, upon others that God graciously wove into this story. And God is now spreading this boundary of his people out across the world. There's never been a time in history that people across the world are embracing faith like they are right now. I don't know that you would know that from reading the newspaper. But you live in the great period of Christianity's triumph when people across the globe are coming to faith like never, never before. Is there misbehavior, is there indiscretions, and is there sort of failed moral life? Is that that a reason to include them? Is it to suggest that God uses the broken people of this world and in their selfishness and in their failure, and even their failure does not disqualify them from being part of God's story? That would be a pretty good sermon, too. Maybe... Maybe they're in there just because we're to think that God works in remarkable ways, in ways that we may not have ever suspected or suspicioned, that we must sort of be on our guard and be at hope and be glad that God has drawn us into the great story and see God's work and His purpose in the great story. If you see what God has been doing all along and who He uses and how He accomplishes His work and how He brings the story forward and how He's going to bring Jesus into this world and you see the line up there, then you just may have hope that somehow God... To use and restore a person who's broken and a person who thinks they have forfeited their future and a person who doesn't think they have a religious leg to stand on and thinks they don't have a moral leg to stand on and yet find themselves still swept into the story of God, swept into doing God's purpose, swept in to play an important chapter. And when Matthew summarizes this list and gets this short little list, he doesn't leave out these folk. Because they might be an embarrassment or because they wanted an ethnically kind of pure version of this story. No. It's important to see how God does his work. And when God brings Jesus into this world and unleashes what he's been about all along to accomplish his purpose in the world, I want you to see that God has been working in these ways all along. He uses those of us who are on the outside and don't think we have any leg to stand on, don't think we have any way of ever being included. He uses those of us who have failed and compromised and fallen along the way. He uses us in ways that we could never imagine, in ways we could never dream. I've got a sober word for you. From the best I can tell, some of the faithful people in the Bible never got to see the role they played. I mean, even Job, we really don't ever get any idea that he understood this big drama that goes on to heaven. Now, every reader of the Bible knows this drama in the first couple of chapters of Job, but Job doesn't know that's going on, and so often I'm not, so often we see people who live out their life, and I don't know that they ever understood fully what they were being used to accomplish. I know our lives are coached and inspired by find your dream, find your passion, find what your contribution is, and so on. And the truth is just this. I don't know that we ever find those things or know those things like we would like. I know this, that God has shown who he was, not only in sending Jesus, not only in what Jesus has said about God, but God has shown who he is by getting Jesus here in the first place. And the way he worked through people to get Jesus here shows you He can take broken people and redeem them. He can take the outsiders and welcome him into his very family. He can take those people who have been excluded and bring them into the centerpiece, the well house, the short condensed list of what God uses and who God uses to get his work done. And I want to say to you this day, you keep your eyes on God's big story, you keep your eyes on being faithful, you, t- you keep your, your heart awakened to the idea that, that there, we have this great privilege to be swept into the purpose and grace of God and that God's grace has been now included us. You do understand, uh, in light of this story, we're the outsiders, you get it, right? We're the Gentiles, we're the ones on the outside now who are in because of God's great grace and now we were outsiders before, but now we're brought in to be children. We're brought in to be heirs. We belong to the story, and we must keep our eyes on what God is doing and pray that we be, might be gifts given the, the privilege to be faithful at every turn in any turn. Faithful when no one else is looking just as an act of worship. Faithful when maybe you might not think it matters much because it's not going to make a big difference. Faithful at every turn. Can I share with you the ramblings of a a vain preacher who might have wondered along the way what his preaching did and what his preaching never accomplished? I won't indict others, but I'll tell you. When is it that God has used me? And the truth is really... God has blessed me with a few times along the way. I've got a few students who've gone on to do wonderful things. I've got folks in Africa who are doing remarkable things and people who know Jesus in Africa in a way that they wouldn't have before unless my students had gone there and cared for people. And Now, I added very little to them, just encouragement and some instruction along the way, but it feels so wonderful to see when I think I can see a connection. But I just want to tell you, I don't know that I... I don't know that I'll know in my life. If I'm just thinking vainly, I would think, well, it's when I preached to that big crowd that one Easter Sunday morning, right? But the truth is it might have been those 10 people one Sunday night in a little church in the hills of Arkansas, right? You get what I'm saying? And the truth is this, you don't know, you don't know. The privilege that's before you and so I've asked in the mercy of God that he would take me away from my concern about knowing and and achieving and so on right and just awaken me to the privilege of this and I awaken and challenge you to be awakened to this privilege and that is you do your best to be faithful if it's something small If it's something large, or if no one's watching at all. Because God does these remarkable things. He can take people that, by any earthly version of the story, have no business in this story whatsoever. And yet God can reach and take people in their brokenness and their sin from places we would never dream and bring them into his person and his purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And I'd like to now go to the second point in my sermon, and that is how Jesus fulfills each of these three ideas. Okay, are you ready? Okay, well, maybe not. How about this? How about if I just say, isn't what we've done here at Christmas enough to awaken us to these realities? So who did God call upon to be the mother and adoptive father of Jesus? Haven't you you mused over this in this Christmas season? Haven't you noticed he didn't pick the queen, but he picked a simple maiden out of Judea named Mary? And, and where was Jesus born? It was the rich Carlton right? No, where was it? Was it in a place for animals, in a makeshift crib, where animals ate their food, a tray. And all the wonder that we see in this story. We have to concede that not everybody saw it. Those central players get to see the report of the angels and the gifts from the wise men and so on. But so many look at Jesus and never understand. If you read Jesus' story through, you'll find there's plenty of folks who look at him and just see him as suspect wondering what some upstart from the north is trying to do coming down here and teaching like he's got a degree when he probably doesn't right read john chapter eight and 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 you don't have to read it with great subtlety to find out that they're talking about jesus jesus's mom and and they're suspicioning whether he had her a real legitimate father you Look at how Jesus was brought into this world, and I just want to say to you, it's the most unremar- remarkable, It's not anything we would anticipate, but it's what you would come to expect from a God whose purpose is to sweep the great human family in all of its brokenness into his purpose and work. And I ask you this morning, if you find yourself on the fringe of this story, don't keep back. Jump in with both feet and embrace this God who has given us grace and included us in his story. And I ask all of us to serve faithfully this God with this confidence that whether it's done, used to do something remarkable, is the next Billy Graham in your Sunday school class, that kind of thing, right? Uh, It may be something remarkable, it may be something modest. It may be that you'll never know the consequence of it all, at all in your lifetime. But if I can pay tribute to this kind of God who's loved us all along and that's enough that's enough that's enough